You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. My name's Greg Wilson. I'm here with Rob DeHoopy. I think this is our episode uh, 19. Hey, Rob, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Greg. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Uh, it's uh, I can't believe it's May already. It's single de mile for those listening. Uh, recording, I think this uh, episode will drop on uh, May 8th, but uh, just celebrated May the 4th be with you yesterday, Star Wars Day, and uh, today single de mile. What a I always find it a fun time period um, when we get both those holidays back to back. I guess not not official holidays, but but fun days nonetheless. Yeah, May the Fourth's not you know I guess not a technical <laughs> holiday. Is that a Hallmark holiday or that's that's more of a that's probably a Disney holiday now that Star Wars is owned by Disney. I, I'm gonna say it's a holiday for some people. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Um, let's catch up on a couple of, uh, I think, more more timely updates. Um, one thing we wanted to share with folks, uh, recertification. So the recertification window uh, is now open for Title X family planning clinics, uh, STD, and uh, TB grantee covered entities. So uh, annual recertification period, I think the window is from May 8th through June 5th. So if you qualify under that uh, covered entity type, want to make sure that you're paying attention to emails that you get from OPA and complete uh, recertification for another year of eligibility. Um, hospital recertification, I presume, is going to be again in the summer, right, Rob? Any reason to believe it won't be in the August, September period this year? Yeah, no, for hospitals, my guess is they stay to that same format. I, I haven't seen or heard anything yet, but um, they've been pretty consistent about that. So so I'm I'm guessing that they'll keep it very similar, August, September timeframe. All right, good. And another uh, timely update this week marks the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency. So uh, as of May 11th, uh, according to uh, Biden's executive order, the PHE expires. And with that, um, We've seen some updates on the HRSA website indicating that specific COVID-19 PHE flexibilities that were allowed under the 340B program are going to expire with the expiration of the PHE on May 11th. So, um, man, it's like three years now. Can't it's hard, it's hard to believe it's been that long, <laughs> right? It, it, it really, it really has. Um, it's, it feels like it went well. Doesn't feel like it's really been three years, but when I think about all the things we went through with COVID, yeah, it kind of feels like a distant memory at this point. So maybe, maybe it's been that long. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so it, you know, definitely an era. That we, we there's some provisions with that uh, COVID nineteen PHE for three forty B and HRSA that I think was really beneficial for um, for covered entities and uh, and and with those ending, it's just a, a probably a good reminder for those things are going to end. Yeah. So it, again, the 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 HRSA notice that's on the website doesn't really talk about specific uh, provisions that are expiring. But when you look at the COVID-19 resource page on OPA's website, or I guess on HRSA's website, a couple of things that I guess are included in kind of the, the retiring or the sunsetting of these flexibilities is first is expedited registration of covered entities. So through the PAG, covered entities have been able to register for the 340B program as new covered entities. They've been able to expedite child site registrations and contract pharmacy registrations outside of the typical quarterly calendar um, registration window. So 
uh, only got a few more days left to get in expedited registrations, right, Rob? That's right. So, you know, if you happen to miss the April open enrollment and you've got either a new child site or a new contract pharmacy or heck, even a new hospital um, that uh, qualifies and you want to try and get in before the July 1st registration, because then you would start October 1st, um, you do have until May 11th to request an expedited um, registration for either either one of those um, program components. And um, yeah, that, that's about to come to an end. So the only time we ever see it open up is if we have some natural disasters, we'll see it during some of those, um, if, if something's declared a disaster for that, that very generalized, that local area um, geographically, yeah. um, sometimes they'll get these provisions for a short period of time. But um, just something to think about if it was on your radar or something you're thinking about, you've got a few days left if you're listening to this podcast on the day it drops, which is May 8th. So again, May 11th, 2023 yeah, is um, when that goes away. Yeah, one one common question that's that's come up in like the anticipation of the PHE expiring is whether or not the the FAQ that HRSA published in June of 2020, I think it's FAQ 4301 or 4301, that kind of defines HRSA's interpretation that a new outpatient department's eligible to begin purchasing 340B drugs immediately once upon booking outpatient revenue and, and expenses on the general ledger for that cost center. Um, and the fact that registration of that new outpatient department doesn't need to precede implementation. So you can register that new department once the cost report gets filed and once an OPA registration windows op window opens. But that FAQ really says, look, you can start buying or dispensing 340B drugs to pay eligible patients in those new departments uh, immediately. That doesn't go away with the expiration of the PHE. Is that right? 100% uh, correct, right? So yeah, it's, it's a great point. So for child sites, probably not that big a deal because because we can consider them qualified as soon as they're considered a hospital outpatient department. They don't have to be on a file cost report. You just can't register them. So, so really, from a from a qualification or use standpoint, it's really contract pharmacies and probably new covered entities um, that would benefit still from the COVID PHE. A child sites probably less of a less of an impact since you can still consider them qualified before registration, as long as you can confirm your feeding expenses and. Uh, charges to the Medicare cost report on a qualified line. So great call out. And that was something we always talk about because it is, if you go to OPACE's website, it is mentioned kind of as part of that um, kind of emergency and COVID PHE component. And, uh, but yeah, FAQ 44301 definitely clarifies that this 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 will continue on uh, after the PHE ends. So yeah. great reminder. No, another thing that's referenced on that, that COVID resources page, but isn't impacted by the expiration of the PHE is the use of telehealth. So HRSA recognizes that telehealth is just a part of the standard care delivery model for a lot of providers right now. So um, even, you know, in the increased use of telehealth because of the COVID pandemic, um, telehealth is just a standard, you know, st standard, you know, approach to qualified encounters right now. So no need to begin to carve out telehealth as, as eligible care at your covered entity. Another provision, I think that, and I, I don't know if this has continued, it's still listed on the COVID resources page, but uh, at one point, HRSA was pushing out weekly updates to the Medicaid exclusion file. So I think right now we can presume that if they haven't already pulled back those weekly updates, you know, they will move back to quarterly updates of the Medicaid exclusion file. So again, there's a little bit of a lag when you update your Medicaid billing numbers for carbon covered entities. Um, where that that uh, Medicaid exclusion file gets published 
once every quarter as opposed to more more routinely or more I guess more frequently during the the PAG. And then the last point of um, the COVID um, provisions that that goes away. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, Rob. Is there was some uh, discussion or you know some some information published around well you know, because of drug shortages that went you know that that spiked during the PAG. Um, you know, covered entities will occasionally have to buy GPO purchase drugs when a 340B or a WAC price drug is not available. Again, primarily related to um, shortages. So we may be talking private label drugs, um, GPO purchase drugs, you know, shouldn't be used for covered outpatient drugs under GPO prohibition requirements. But if you don't have access to any other uh, drugs, you can buy on GPO. And HRSA said, look, during the PHE, you do not need to notify HRSA when you're making those uh, those purchases that 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 I guess um, that the requirements to communicate to HRSA when you're buying GPO for covered outpatient drug, I guess, is reinstated now, right? That that's my understanding as well, right? It was a great, and I remember as a covered entity, every time we had to do it, I was like, oh, take pictures. It's I got to put on a Word doc. I got to send it in. It is a little bit of an administrative burden, but I, but I understand why Hearst is doing it, right? Hearst needs to know that, hey, there's no 340B access or even WAC access for, for affected covered entities. And it's forcing them to buy in GPO, which we know is a condition for participation for those GPO prohibition um, impacted hospitals. And so it's, a, it's definitely something you don't want to be in violation of. And for that reason, it was, you know, I always felt the need and, and always recommended if you do have to do that, make sure you document it all well and, and just, you know, send it to HRSA. There's a um, email you send it to HRSA. Typically, you don't hear back. Sometimes um, we had a situation where we were sending the, you know, for the same one over and over or related. And finally, HRSA said, you know what, we're good on that one. Yeah, you don't have to keep telling us just if, if it's so short, just keep buying it. But, um, but I always tell people err on the side of caution unless we hear something from HRSA. Uh, do make sure you're documenting and then just sending it in so that they're aware um, for that. What that really does is if you end up with a HRSA audit um, and they identify the GPO prohibition violation, um, it won't end up being a finding and you won't be removed from the program or you know recommended that you were not eligible for the program for the time period of the GPO prohibition. So this is definitely a um, you know a, a defensive strategy. Make sure you're fully covered here and be be conservative. We don't really want to uh, play around with GPO prohibition risk, and so. That's our my recommendation is is again if you have to buy GPO drug for covered outpatient drugs start sending in um, start documenting and sending it in after May 11th um, unless we hear from HRSA um, so but that 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 one's the one that scares me because I think people might forget since yeah. it's been a long time since we had to send those, that documentation in yeah and I mean drug shortages really haven't resolved uh, you know as we see the the end of the the pandemic here I mean drug shortages are still a major kind of operational burden that covered entities are dealing with. But, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, HRSA does expect you to, you know, in, inform them when you're, you know, making GPO purchases for, for covered outpatient drugs. So make sure to look for the uh, the Apexis form that is out there that uh, kind of serves as the template for that communication to HRSA. All right. I think that's it for me in terms of timely updates. Uh, Rob, got a cool guest today, right? Uh, amazing, amazing guest. So, so looking forward to this. And and we we've got some legislative updates we were gonna do, but uh, you know our guest is gonna cover some of that and and some of our discussion. Um, I also had the opportunity to attend the Assembia conference, a specialty pharmacy conference earlier this week. Um, had some kind of cool information or updates that I wanted to share with the group. But for time, 
we want to get to our discussion um, with Ted Slasky. So excited that we can have Ted on the podcast. I've known Ted for years. He's been a you know huge um, member of the 340 community almost from the beginning with his work with uh, Bill Von Olsen and um, Snappa and now three, which became 340B Health. Um, of course, he he now runs the 340B Report, also his um, his own uh, consulting firm, Wexford Solutions. And uh, I think it's a great discussion that we had, a great conversation we have with him today. Yeah, we're going to pick his brain on what's kind of happening in D.C. right now and talk a little bit about different advocacy efforts, what might be brewing in terms of proposed legislation, and really get Ted's prediction on some of the big developments that we're you know, anticipating in the next uh, year or so in the 340B space from contract pharmacy to repayment of Medicare Part B uh, revenue and a whole host of other other things. So stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we'll have a really great conversation with Ted Slasky. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by SpendBend Pharmacy. Do you wish you had another 340B expert on your team to help you manage your 340B program, but there's no time or budget available to hire an FTE? The SpendBend Pharmacy 340B Staff Augmentation Solution provides you with an industry expert to help manage your 340B compliance tasks. Visit spendbend.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how you can maximize your 340B efforts. Hey everyone, welcome back. Rob, we're here with Ted Slavsky. Ted, thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Greg. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. We're huge fans. The 340B report love all the, you know, the the information that you guys are providing. And this is like a, a really great time to be consuming 340B information out there. Lots happening in the 340B space. Lots going to be happening probably in the next uh, uh, months to, to years. Um, would love to kind of understand the, the history of 340B report. Tell us a little and, bit about the backstory. Sure, sure. Well, if I can, I would just want to jump in before you do that, Ted. Um, I, I've known you for many, many years. Gosh, well over a decade at this point. Gosh, probably pushing 15 back in the day when you were with it. And so I feel like I've got to start with, before we get the 340B report, we've got to start with the fact that you were one of the original people with SNAP. In fact, you might have been the original SNAP, but you and uh, Bill Von Olsen, of course. And that's how I always remember uh, snap. Uh, so one thing we want to clarify, and I already did a little bit just because I knew I'd win this one. So if, if I didn't, I wouldn't bring this up. But we hear people say Snappa and Snaffa and just wanted to hear from you. What's the right pronunciation? I know it's historical now, uh, but what was the right pronunciation? Sure. there? Sure. We actually started as the Public Hospital Pharmacy Coalition uh, when I came on board in 1996. Bill Von Osen, who helped uh, craft the 340B law, hired me uh, just out of uh, graduate school from Duke University. And um, I had just gotten a master's degree, um, and uh, it was then called the Public Hospital Pharmacy Coalition, group of about 50 hospitals that were in our association at the time. Um, and then in, um, in the early 2000s, we changed our name to Safety Net Hospitals for Pharmaceutical Access, um, and it was a mouthful. Um, uh, no one knew, knew how to pronounce it. Half of the people said Snappa, half of the people said Snappa, and half of the, uh, the other quarter couldn't figure out what to do. Um, so eventually we decided to um, go with an even uh, snappier name, which is 340B Health. And uh, the organization has now been in place for, uh, you know, for over 30 years since the inception of the program. Um, my background is uh, actually an interesting one. I was a journalist by trade. 
Um, I went to Tufts University, political science major, always was interested in reporting, particularly on politics, and uh, was the sports editor of my school newspaper. And then after that, um, worked at U.S. News and World Report for four years and uh, worked mostly under uh, the tutelage of David Gergen. David was the editor-at-large at U.S. News and an advisor to four U.S. presidents. Um, and he was a great mentor. And uh, so I did that. And then I became really interested in healthcare policy and uh, decided to go back to graduate school at Duke for a master's in public policy. Served as a congressional fellow during the Clinton healthcare reform effort um, and on the Senate Democratic Policy Committee. And then um, got hired by Bill to. Uh, basically grow what was then just this really small group of hospitals that were um, part of the association um, and uh, started with 50 hospitals. When I got there and when I left in 2018, we had 1,400 hospital members uh, throughout the country. Um, and we were able to get the program expanded to rural hospitals during uh, my tenure. Um, we were also able to get the program expanded to children's hospitals. So. We had some pretty major accomplishments. We also formed the 340B Coalition, which consists of uh, about 12 national organizations representing the healthcare providers that participate in 340B. So was very involved in running the, uh, the two conferences that we held each year and was really excited to have an opportunity to work with you, Rob, back in your days working for a hospital in Utah, as well as continue to work with you today. Fantastic. What a wonderful story. And for those who are newer to the 340B program, uh, it, Ted, Ted was running 340B Health, as we know it today, SNAP, as I, I say it, uh, historically, and and just tons of great work that you've done for the 340B program between you um, and, and Bill. And, you know, I, I for my generation, I always like, uh, I, I, lo I also love the fact that your guys' names are Bill and Ted, and I just feel like it's been an amazing or awesome adventure. So um, I do really enjoy that as well. An excellent adventure. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been particularly excellent. And uh, actually, a few years ago, Bill and I played those characters uh, during uh, one of the coalition conference uh, events that one of the one of the sponsors was hosting, um, which was really funny to dress up in those outfits. And uh, uh, we we Bill and I remained very close friends. Um, I rely on him and the folks at Powers Law, his uh, law firm. Uh, for guidance and, and support when it comes to 340B, as well as, as, well as relying on folks like uh, Rob and Greg. Um, you know, it's really our, our ability to write and report on the 340B program, which I think we do better than anyone, is the result of having really good sources. And uh, so we're very, very pleased to be able to turn to the experts in this program, whether they're the folks who are working at hospitals or health centers or pharmaceutical manufacturers, et cetera. Um, we cover everything related to the 340B program. Uh, as you know, Tom Berga is the editor-in-chief. Tom also used to work at 340B Health and is uh, really, really smart and knows a lot about the program. And we're so excited about 340B Report and we continue to grow. We're gonna be uh, building out our editorial team we have some new hires that we will be announcing at some point soon, and we'll be providing more information and more valuable content for our readers. 
You know, I, I got to say that, uh, you know, we, we, of course, we always relied on 340B Health for um, real-time information, but 340B Report, fantastic. And for anyone listening, um, if you're not familiar with it, you can sign up um, just to start getting the emails and it'll give you the, the pieces. But, but you really, I strongly recommend, you know, go to your organization. Um, get a subscription uh, because then you can get the full content, all the information, and they just provide real-time, great, updated content. Um, and I, I, I personally rely on 340 Report to keep me updated. One of one of my main sources of of understanding, hey, when something comes up, especially on the legislative side, the things are moving so fast right now that uh, you guys being there super critical. And just want to say thank you for starting it, just being able to provide that news outlet and, and updated information for all us on the front lines. Yeah, no, we, we've got a list of, of topics we want to cover today, but from, from your historical perspective, Ted, I know this isn't on our list, but can you think of a time in the life of the 340B program where we've seen so much disruption? We've got COVID pandemic impacting our providers. We've got the contract pharmacy restrictions implemented by manufacturers. Lots of debate about the need for more transparency. Has there been a more, I guess, chaotic time in the 340B space in the past? Uh, nope, we've never experienced anything like this. Um, you know, it's been 30 years. There have been a couple of uh, potential threats to the program through legislative um, efforts, some of them that actually had some traction back in the mid-90s, including a bill in um, the uh, House that would have uh, basically required covered entities to pass on all their savings through the 340B program. Um, fortunately, that uh, did not become law, um, and uh, now we face uh, the biggest uh, challenge in the program's history. The last three years have been uh, particularly devastating for uh, the healthcare providers of the program, um, and it's been a really, really uh, difficult and, and a very uh, bad um, thing for me to watch. And, and I, I, I'm now in a new position where I'm the publisher and CEO, so I uh, try to stay neutral, and we do report um, on every side, and uh, we're not afraid to uh, report on things that may not be the most flattering for hospitals or others in the program, but I still have, of course, my roots are in the 340B provider community and um, certainly uh, would like this program to prosper. Yeah, I, I appreciate you mentioning that. The need to be objective when we look at this is, is really important. I know Rob and I have tried to do that on our podcast. You know, we support, you know, grantee covered entities, hospital covered entities, and there's a little bit of a fracture right now in the 340, 440B community. Some of the mainstream news articles last year that highlighted some bad actors in the 340B space, it's hard to defend some, some of that, you know, particularly what was reported out of the Wall Street Journal article in um, Richmond, Virginia. So, you know, I can really appreciate the need to provide objective information. People need to be discussing both the good and the bad. And I think you guys do a great job of kind of highlighting everything. Contract pharmacy issues are, are probably the biggest concern that clients that we work with um, are struggling with. Where are we right now with this whole um, impasse with regard to manufacturers implementing really rigorous restrictions in the th contract pharmacy space? Yeah, I mean, I think we're at a at a whole new level of uh, challenge. Um, in the last couple of months, as you're well aware and have been reporting on um, as well, um, uh, we've seen lots of uh, manufacturers increase their restrictions on access to uh, discounts in the contract pharmacy setting, particularly for the hospitals in the program. 
Um, and I unfortunately do not see that changing, at least in the short term, um, unless we get uh, some more promising results out of the two remaining federal appellate court cases, one that is being um, heard at in Washington, D.C., the other one that's being heard in, um, in Chicago. Uh, the first decision that came out of Philadelphia was not uh, was not positive, uh, at least if you're a 340B provider. It was uh, the judges ruled in favor of the drug manufacturers and said that there is no requirement to provide an unlimited access to 340B pricing in the contract pharmacy setting. Um, so uh, that is uh, sort of been set the tone for this year, and we have now uh, are facing more challenges in getting access to discounted drugs for for patients um and i um i'm not that optimistic about the uh the other two court cases that's consistent with some of the conversations that we've had right right robin we, we talked to Vasharia keys last week from or a couple weeks ago now from from NAC, and you know that you know our, our collective opinion is that we're probably not going to see relief from from the court cases, we'll ask you a prediction about that that later. Um, but but now it's you know covered entities have to you know look at what the restrictions are, look at the different policies being implemented by the manufacturers, and try to navigate you know operational changes at the covered entity level to try to you know take advantage of ex take advantage of exemptions that maybe some of those manufacturers are implementing, or look at you know different strategies for for extending access to 340B price drugs. Well, and, and which is Vasheri's point, right, On when, when she came on, was that the courts likely aren't going to solve it, especially to, to your point with the Philadelphia appellate court already ruling on behalf of manufacturers. Best case scenario, they're gonna be, there's going to be a split or all three will sort of not be 100% aligned. So it goes up to the, to the Supreme Court and who knows what happens at that point. And so it does feel like it's going to have to be legislative. Uh, it's going to have to be a solution. And as we read the various things that are out there, some have more traction than others. Some are I think was that uh, Mike Mon would call them fetching bills, right? Where some are just putting out bills because they're fetching more dollars from from political action committees or whatever it may be. But uh, lots of legislation out there, and so it, to me, it feels like it's going to be legislation is going to have to resolve the contract pharmacy issue and not the courts. I'm not sure how you feel about that. Yeah, I think you're right, Rob. Uh, it's uh, you know I've actually been uh, arguing for the last few years. I write a monthly column for one of my clients um, and. I, I have been urging uh, the hospitals to engage with Congress and try to get this resolved through the legislative route. Um, I, I was just very concerned that this was going to drag on for a long while. Um, and I, I think it would have been wiser to uh, get that resolved a few years ago before this became such a huge challenge while well, it just started. but. Um, that's where we are now. We did have a story, our lead story today in 340B report is that uh, the hospital groups are now working with Representative Doris Matsui on a bill that would require pharmaceutical manufacturers to participate in the contract pharmacy program and not be able to place restrictions on access to 340B pricing. I think that's a positive development, and I hope that will help resolve this issue, um, but it certainly is not going to be easy, and there will certainly be a lot of concessions that will have to be made in order to get this bill uh, passed, particularly in a uh, co divided Congress. Um, it becomes harder and harder to 
pass legislation. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen, um, maybe months, we've seen some, you know, these grassroots advocacy groups pop up, you know, and, and part of the, the rhetoric is like, we're frustrated that there hasn't been enough um, traction on the hospital side to pursue legislation. Any insight into why, you know, the hospital organizations maybe strategically avoided pursuing, you know, some type of legislative resolution of what's going on? I guess I would say probably for three reasons. One, uh, fear over opening up the 340B law and the possibility of there being other restrictions placed on the program that maybe are not related to contract pharmacy or that would narrow the scope of the contract pharmacy program. Um, another would be that uh, they're arguing to the courts that uh, the law is clear, that the, um, that the drug manufacturers should be required to offer contract pharmacy discounts and then to suddenly say, well, the law is not that clear. It could be conceived as or perceived as a, a concession. And so I think those are the primary reasons. I still think that you need to be able to walk um, uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. And so you need to have uh, dual strategies. And I think that that would have been the way to go if they had really, really pushed hard to get this resolved. I know it wouldn't have been easy, but if they pushed hard and really had ginned up their members and got them really engaged on this issue, I think this could have been resolved a year or two ago or earlier. And so now we're in this really unfortunate situation where we've got one of the primary uh, associations in the 340B coalition, NAC, which represents the community health centers, um, has formed an alliance with pharma. Their proposal would be, uh, well, it's I understand why they went forward with it. Um, it would really be uh, unfortunate for the hospitals and the program. It would greatly restrict access to the program for the hospitals. So I don't think that's the solution. Um, but now we have a situation where we have a divided front. And I know that's been troubling to a lot of people. Yeah, that's that's definitely our concern is that divided front. And one thing we brought up at the end is, you know, how, how do we find our way back so that all of the 340B covered entities and coalitions that support them are are at least realigned. Um, and yeah, again, we agree talking to Vashir, we understand why they did it. It still makes it a little hard for the hospital side. She made the point, um, she made a great quote, by the way. Her quote was, you know, uh, she wanted to be at the dinner table, but she didn't want the community health centers, FQHCs to be dinner. Um, but it mm -hmm. kind of feels like some of the hospitals are dinner. And so that doesn't um, sit well either, right, with, with that aspect. But, but you know, she made the, she said NAC supports community health centers, right? 340B Health supports hospitals. And so each of their views is going to be a little different. And she says, we have to do what we need to do to support community health centers who are more significantly impacted on the contract pharmacy side. And, and we do agree with that. They, their contract farms, they don't typically have as much administered drugs. They have less. So the impact to them is larger. But, um, but still, as a previous covered entity on the hospital side um, and supporting both sides, this, it's a tough one to see this going on right now. Yeah, I mean, she was right. You know, we don't, she, the grant, she doesn't want the grantees to be served up for dinner, but I think what they did in their proposals really kind of put the, put the dish covered entity type as the, the, the turkey on the table. A lot of the merits of the, the ASAP 340B principles, you know, I disagree with coming from my, my dish hospital background, but you can understand strategically why they felt like it's a sink or swim moment for us. You know, if we're not seeing the hospital groups move forward, you know, we're going to partner with pharma who we believe will want to move forward now. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's right. I mean, NAC was in a really difficult position, and uh, they uh, were under the impression that the hospitals were not up for opening up the law, and um, then they felt a, an obligation to move forward. Now things have changed. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the next few months. Uh, regardless of what happens, um, I do think eventually we're going to have a legislative solution. I think that this is going to be decided through uh, sausage making, as they say, is what happens in Congress. Um, and I don't think anyone's going to be completely happy, but I do think that uh, there will be some return to normalcy. Whether it happens in 2023 remains to be seen. I was going to say, so I mean, we so we could take that in a couple of directions. So you know, we're talking legislation. There's definitely there's some kind of they've been introduced, but then there's going to be a couple that probably have more legs and probably have the best chance of passing. So I'd love to get your take on which bill you think has the best chance, and then we can focus on that. Or secondarily, there was also you know this concept of hospitals and 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 AHA, um, and you know, an opening up legislation because we heard from um, one of the AHA uh, uh, staff members in front of Congress. Was that last week? I'm losing track of time. I think it was last Wednesday. Could be two Wednesdays ago. I can't remember. Um, but really, even pushing back on transparency, and, and I think it was Ashley Thompson saying, we even, you know, we don't feel transparency is needed. So not even willing to really give on the transparency side either. And some curious on thoughts on there, because I thought that's one area we could, but maybe she's just holding to that negotiation point because we still have that to play and they don't want to give it up too easy at this point because there's so much that we need on the hospital or even the covered entity side. Yeah, I think it must be um, holding it up for negotiation because I think it's going to be, there's no question that the hospitals are going to have to start reporting on their savings if this uh, if this bill is going to pass. Uh, I just, the farmer is too powerful in Washington to get a clean bill that would uh, basically restore the discounts. There, you know, as you, you referenced before, Greg, there were some unflattering articles in on the front pages of some of our nation's most respected newspapers that showed that there were some hospitals that weren't necessarily being great stewards of the program. And that is something that is uh, impacting not only um, the Republican lawmakers in here, but some of the Democrats who are generally more supportive of the program. While the program has always had strong bipartisan support, the the Democrats are sort of the base when it comes to the 340B program. You can always count on your base, but when the base is starting to get a little bit uh, wary, that's that's when you know you need to uh, you need to compromise. So I, I'm hopeful that uh, that everyone can come to the table and we can get to an agreement. I don't envision the same contract pharmacy program. I, I see it being perhaps uh, uh, less ambitious in scope, but I don't think the contract pharmacy program will go away like the proposal um, that's currently in place by Pharma and NAC, which would really reduce um, access to 340B pricing on specialty pharmacy, mail order, referral uh, referral drugs, um, and and all of that. So I, I and telehealth. So. I, I do think that we're going to come to a compromise. It's just going to be a lot of work and a lot of uh, battling in the next. I, I hope it gets resolved uh, before Congress uh, adjourns in December for this session of Congress. They'll be back again in January, but they often take several weeks off in, in January. So you just never know when they're going to come back. 
Yeah, so Rob mentioned the the hearing out of the uh, Energy and Commerce Health Subcommittee last week. A couple of other, I guess, developments or proposals that have been brought to the House um, Subcommittee, the Protect 340B Act. Um, I think it was uh, Congressman Rosendale from Montana's uh, Drug Pricing Transparency and Accountability Act. Um, another draft bill proposed by uh, Representative Bouchon out of Indiana around um, 340B reporting requirements. What What are your thoughts on you know the the traction of some of those those elements of uh, legislation that are being proposed or discussed initially in the House E&C Committee? Yeah, um, the most of the bills that have been that are being discussed mostly in the Energy and Commerce Committee would be ones that would require more reporting on the uh, through. Uh, the covered entities would have to report on how they're utilizing their savings and also um, how much they're charging patients, how much their, uh, uh, what their patient mix is in various sites. Um, a lot of them are uh, legislation that is being advocated by the pharmaceutical industry. There are also bills to put a pause on growth of the program, particularly for the hospitals in the program. But then there's also a bill that is, be, uh, that was introduced, uh, that is uh, something that's supported by all the 340B providers, and that is the 340B Protect Act, which uh, which was just recently introduced by uh, Congresswoman Spanberger from Democrat from Virginia and Dusty Johnson, Republican from South Dakota, and that would uh, protect 340B providers from discriminatory reimbursement by uh, PBMs and insurers, um, and it would also uh, uh, create what is called a neutral clearinghouse, which would allow um, there to be a place where basically the, the government would have to hire uh, a neutral clearinghouse to um, make sure that drug manufacturers are not subject to both a um, upfront discount through the 340B program and then a back-end rebate through the Medicaid rebate program. Uh, this is something that has been a big complaint from the drug industry for many years. It's a legitimate complaint because they shouldn't be um, required to provide two discounts on the same drug. And the neutral clearinghouse is one that I think has a lot of traction because it's something where it's not a vendor that's hired by the pharmaceutical industry that would be running this, but it would be um, someone that HRSA would hire uh, that one would hope would be um, would not uh, play favorites um, and would uh, be fair to both the drug industry and the providers and could resolve these situations where um, we where we have a duplicate discount. So I think that bill is a good bill. Um, it's, it was introduced last year and had over a hundred sponsors in uh, the House of Representatives. It's the only 340B bill that gained significant support um, in the last session of Congress. And I think it will gain significant support this year. The one element that it doesn't have is re resolving the contract pharmacy impasse. So that is something that would need to be added to that bill um, if, they, uh, if they do go ahead and get legislation enacted um, in, uh, in 2023. Now, real quick, no. So I heard um, potentially as that bill, because it, I think that bill doesn't have a Senate companion bill. So when it goes to Senate, or that there is a thought that um, some transparency could be added to that from the Senate side. Um, do you think that's a possibility? If that, if that's the that bill has the best chance, is that what we'll probably see is that being um, 
I guess, uh, uh, is that that the sausage getting made um, as it goes over to the Senate? Uh, that's a good question. I wouldn't be surprised if an identical bill, first of all, gets introduced in the Senate. I know there's been discussions about getting a bill introduced that would be bipartisan, like the House bill. Um, when they uh, add provisions related to um, transparency, um, reporting requirements, et cetera, I think that might come later on when bills get amended. Um, uh, and that often happens during a committee markup. Um, basically, as you may recall, uh, there are two committees of jurisdiction over 340B in the Senate. It's the Senate Help Committee, Health, Education, Lab Labor, and Pensions Committee. And then in the House, it's the Energy and Commerce Committee, which you've referenced already. So those are the places where um, the 340B legislation or the sausage will likely be made. Um, and a lot of that is done um, where bills are introduced and then um, items are added and deleted from those bills as they go through the congressional process. Patient definition has been a hot topic, um, particularly with regard to the, uh, the Genesis case. Um, do you think any provisions around patient definition get addressed through uh, one of these potential legislative drafts, or do you think that's reserved for rulemaking eventually on HRSA's side? Yeah, um, that might be one where uh, they decide not to address it in in uh, an actual bill just because it's so complicated and there are so many different types of covered entities in the program. So patient definition for one group of 340P provider might make sense, but the patient definition for another provider, it, it doesn't apply. Um, so I think that that would be done uh, probably by HRSA. There is, I think, a decent chance that HRSA will get regulatory authority, which they've been pushing for years. Right now, they can only issue guidance um, on many elements of the 340B program, including patient definition. And they're, uh, they're able to issue regulations on very narrow uh, parts of the program. So it's a it's a complicated situation, and I know Hearst has been pushing for over a decade now for regulatory authority. Uh, the providers in the program have been hesitant to uh, support that, and that's why those bills have uh, died or those efforts have died um, because they're worried that HRSA will narrow the scope of the program too much. But I wouldn't be surprised if that's part of a grand bargain. Let's talk about advocacy. Um, again, number of new advocacy groups that have popped up over the last couple of months, and I think it was uh, uh, your your article that you um, uh, put together for uh, for Verity Solutions, a little cheat sheet on the new new groups. Uh, give us a quick rundown of who these these players are in 340B advocacy today. Sure, um, there are you know there are been many groups that have been involved in 340B for a long time including my old organization 340B Health and uh different hospital groups and other groups that have come out fairly recently like Ryan White Clinics for 340B Access that's very active and engaged on 340B um but I decided to take a look at some of the ones that are maybe less well known but that have come out just recently including there are you know, I'm going to actually just grab my list in front of me just so that I can remember who all they are. Um, so uh, the latest group is called 340B Truth. Uh, they have just announced their formation. They're creating a 501C C4. 
Um, that is uh, being created by some folks who are involved in the um, basically the 340B pharmacy service world. I work at companies like yours who are just really frustrated about the lack of um, uh, progress in the contract pharmacy uh, stalemate. Uh, so we're going to be learning more about 340B Truth in the coming weeks. I understand from my colleague Tom Berga that they're going to be having a, a some sort of webinar or call next week, which I Tom emailed me about a few minutes ago. So I'll be really interested to see um, what their you know agenda is. I know they're looking for a resolution to the contract pharmacy matter that would help all covered entities, um, and that's. That's their goal, and I do think that they believe that uh, hospitals are going to need to make some concessions and be more transparent on how they're utilizing their 340B dollars. Um, there is another group that's been around for a little while called Community Voices for 340B, uh, otherwise known as CV340B. Um, CV340B is a grassroots organization um, and they um, aren't really lobbying Capitol Hill, but they're trying to educate the local community about how important 340B is. So they're developing relationships with civic leaders um, and uh, clergy and business leaders and others uh, at the local level to educate them about why 340B is so important to their community and to the mission of the healthcare providers in their community. It's a great organization, um, and I know, I know the folks uh, there well. The, one of the newer groups, and you interviewed Basharia um, from NAC last, uh, in your last podcast, uh, is called AASAP 340B, and that's the Alliance to Save America's 340B program. And that is uh, the, the two primary organizations involved are uh, Pharma, which is, represents the brand name drug manufacturers, and NAC. Uh, they also have a number of other groups that are members, many of them who are uh, organizations that are very friendly to the drug industry. Um, there is also another group called Let 340B, um, which is actually um, run by the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. And Let 340B is an organization that is uh, uh, likes to get uh, engaged and involved, and um, and they're very good at creating publicity. Um, they actually were the ones who did the protest at the 340B coalition meeting, which I know caused some uh, some consternation among the health centers. Um, and uh, that's an organization that will likely continue to be vocal in supporting the program. They believe the programs and is run well and doesn't want any major changes to the program. And then there's another group that has um, become uh, more vocal as well, and that's called 340B Matters. And 340B Matters is an industry-supported group. It's actually supported by uh, Craneware, um, formerly known as Century Data Systems, and they are basically trying to get the word out about how important 340B is. And also, they're not hesitant to take on the drug industry and talk about what they believe to be uh, the types of profits they're making. They've come up with a, a number of suggested principles for reform, and I expect them to continue to be uh, engaged in the debate in the, in the coming months.
you log into LinkedIn every week and it's like there's a nut you see posts from a new organization. So it's hard to keep track of. So this is really helpful to hear all, all the, the the newer, maybe less familiar um, uh, rookie organizations that are out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there'll probably be more, you know, uh, but and, those were the ones that I thought were uh, that I needed to educate the public about and let them know about because that was one of the things I saw on LinkedIn was someone was like, I'm so, it's so hard for me to keep up with these groups. I'm like, that's my next column. So that's why I decided to write about it. I want to ask you about, so ASAP, 340B. Again, we had a great conversation with Vashiri and really understand the intent of what they're trying to do. For, uh, in, from your perspective, surprising to see a uh, grantee organization partner with pharma. Pharma has always been pointed as the bad guy in the whole 340B chaos. And really, I think it's difficult to not include them. You have to look at them as a partner in this. So were you surprised to, to hear that, that NAC had formed an alliance with pharma's lobbying group? Yeah, I, I I wasn't shocked. Um, I I was disappointed, but not shocked. Um, I I was uh, I had heard um, rumblings that the, the hospital groups were not uh, willing to open up the law, and I feel like the health centers really felt like they were in a rock and a hard place. So um, I do understand why they had these conversations. Um, I'm not entirely sure if. Uh, their ideas, um, particularly the ones that would be uh, very painful for the hospitals, were were great ideas. Um, and uh, and I think that the good news is, Basharia mentioned in her interview with you guys that she, her organization is open to reforms to their proposal. Um, and it doesn't sound like they are absolutely stuck on their current principles. So I do. It is really happy. I was very happy to hear Vasharia say that they are open to um, uh, recommendations and, and changes because uh, the current proposal, while it has some elements that make sense, others uh, really just don't seem to be practical. And and also they, they kind of ignore the need for the 340B program to evolve. I mean, we're talking a 30-year-old statute and, and you know, we've got healthcare delivery today that's a lot different than it was back in the 90s where you have specialty pharmacy and mail-order pharmacy and you have telehealth and all these these new novel ways of, of expanding care to to kind of leverage those against the the hospital community it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But we've, I know we've, we've talked about that, Rob. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully, um, you know, all of this will, um, you know, the next step is for the conversations to really begin and the rubber to hit the road here, because um, I do think that uh, time is of the essence. And I, I'm not sure how much longer, you know, even I know a lot of the hospitals and I'd actually be interested in Rob and Greg, your opinion. But my impression is that there's been a little bit of a mini revolt among the hospitals lately where they feel like we need to start to, uh, we need to figure out a solution to this. Uh, uh, are you hearing that from some of your clients as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I've even heard some clients, the hospitals saying that we almost might have to open up the statute so that we can get some clarifications, you know, around contract pharmacy, patient definition, orphan drugs, right? All these things that uh, <clears throat> even though HRSA tried, they got pushed back. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I think hospitals are, 
open to the idea, even though we know what the omnibus, um, uh, or affectionately the uh, the um, 340B omnibus uh, that we had back, what, 2013 timeframe, um, had some things that were going to be difficult for hospitals, but uh, they're starting to see it as, compared to where we are today, it might be time to, to go back to that. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with Rob. I think, you know, covered entities are, are struggling right now. And even though, you know, the manufacturers that have implemented some restrictions and have said, well, look, you can... Uh, you know, retain 340B pricing voluntarily through uploading data to 340B ESP. I mean, that process is fraught with challenges and obstacles and errors. And um, you know, oftentimes covered entity, you know, expends a lot of effort trying to adhere to those guidelines or follow the, those policies, and they still don't see their 340B savings returned back to them. So covered entities are looking at more novel you know, kind of outside of the box ways to go about, you know, mitigating some of that impact. And that just adds complexity to the program. And, you know, a lot of these new strategies are really untested through the HRSA audit process. So it's just, you know, I think a lot of covered entities kind of navigating into really dark waters right now without a lot of precedent or guidance to help them kind of figure out how to how to stay afloat. Yeah, it's just been um, one where I, when I was at the winter conference, uh, the coalition conference, uh, I can't tell you how many hospitals went up to me and said, we got to get this thing resolved. Um, and uh, they're just so frustrated. And and I know that uh, the health centers feel the same way. So I do, I'm so happy that there's at least now more of a concerted effort to try to, to resolve this through uh, working with our, our lawmakers in Washington. And Rob, we've we've talked about the the fact that you know transparency and perhaps some reporting standards really might serve as the olive branch that the 340B provider community can offer up. You know, if you're operating your and managing your 340B program within the the spirit of the law, you really shouldn't be opposed to you know reporting what your 340B savings is, what you do with your 340B savings, as long as that reporting process is, isn't overly onerous. Um, you know, I don't think it's reasonable to report 340B savings down to the separate registered child site, but, you know, at, at the hospital level, it, it, it seems like that's a, a fair thing to ask. I agree. That, that I think that's the key, right? Finding some balance there. Let's 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 get some reporting. But uh, one of the drafts that we saw for um, for this, even though what was said was, oh, this shouldn't be hard for hospitals. It looked hard coming from the hospitals. That was going to take extra effort and, and an ongoing basis. And so I think there has to be some balance in how much reporting, what kind of level of detail, how much granularity. You know, let's let's do something the hospitals are already collecting, so that we're not creating extra burden on on a health system and hospitals that are already short staffed. They're you know they're they're already struggling financially with, with, I mean, financially, and then with staffing and everything else and having to create something that's going to put extra burden on staff that are already completely maxed out. That's, that's a tough, that's a tough one. Yeah, no, I agree. We have to come up with that uh, happy medium uh, because uh, some of the bills that have been introduced, uh, even in, in uh, proposed bills that we've seen uh, are too burdensome. So we need to figure out a way uh, to make this work, but you know, uh, I don't think the days of just saying that w what we report, you know, through the to the IRS uh, and uh, that we report to CMS is sufficient. Uh, there has to be some additional responsibility and requirements. Um, but on the other hand, you don't want uh, your healthcare providers to be spending all their day behind a computer instead of taking care of patients. So. We've got to figure out a way to uh, to resolve that in uh, without overly burdening uh, the healthcare providers in this program. 
Yeah, a, a pragmatic approach to 340B transparency, I think, is something everybody could probably get behind. Another thing that you know, I think we've discussed, Rob, is being maybe advantageous to 340B providers is the the potential for a, a clearinghouse. You know, there, you're going to need a mechanism for for CMS to identify 340B claims to prevent, uh, you know, to take those uh, transactions out of the inflation rebate penalty calculation. You know, covered entities are struggling with different state-specific requirements to tag 340B claims with U8 and UD and SE modifiers. Um, a neutral clearinghouse might eliminate some of the, uh, the, the, the operational burden of, you know, billing your 340B claims correctly. Yeah, I absolutely agreed. I, I, I think that's um, I think that's something that we've been talking about for years. That's probably needed in the program, and and that's and like you said, inflation reduction. Like Medicare is going to need it. Um, it's become a bigger deal for Medicaid. It's the it's probably the stimulus for it caused the ESP among other things. So I, I think that's another one. Those two things actually make sense, um, yeah. and I think would be improvements to the program. And, and again, things that if if we can use it and say, okay, we can do these things, and and what else can we do on the other side? And and again. I, I think there's a negotiation there that, that could work. Just, I guess, everyone has to be willing to, to get there. And that, that is yet to be seen. And I mean, that's a hard sell, I think, to the hospitals and the grantees that have been trying to upload data into a, you know, a pharma-sponsored uh, clearinghouse. I mean, uh, people have got a really bad taste in their mouth as far as trying to work through the hoops of uh, providing data to pharma. But if you can do it in a pragmatic way and you can do it with a, a neutral source, then, you know, it might ease some of the other operational challenges that, that you have to um, take on to manage your program compliantly. We, we've got a crystal. We, we want you to break out your crystal ball here. We've got a couple of questions for you. We want to know uh, what you think about these um, potential developments for the future of 340B. Are you willing to throw out some predictions here, and then we'll bring you back, you know, to uh, yeah. score you on your predictions. Is that okay? Sure. Well, I was just uh, finished up a week at, as an ESPN analyst doing the NFL draft, so I can go ahead and go back into the 340B area. Sure. What the hell? <laughs> All right. First question is, uh, uh, since we're talking about CMS, will covered entities um, see 340B Medicare Part B payment remediation before the end of this calendar year? I'm cautiously optimistic that the uh, hospitals will get their um, refunds uh, for the four years or so that they were um, uh, reimbursed at, uh, at the uh, low level. Um, I'm hopeful that uh, we will have a proposed solution uh, published shortly, sometime in the next month or so, and that uh, a final um, a resolution to the issue will occur probably when um, the OPPS final rule gets issued in the fall. Um, I, I can't guarantee it, but I know that the, the courts are interested in the resolution. That was one, um, that was one of the positive um, developments with 340B over the last few years was the U.S. Supreme Court victory uh, that basically said that CMS did not have the right to significantly cut uh, reimbursement to 340B hospitals in the Part B space. And now it's been a while since, uh, since that has occurred, and uh, we really need CMS to step up its game and, and figure out a way to make uh, the 340B hospitals whole. All right, we're not going to hold you to this this answer, but any any thoughts on what the mechanics of what that repayment to covered entities might look like? Well, I mean, I would think that the easiest way to do it, and I've, I'm not an operational expert, would be 
to send a check back, uh, you know, and that would really resolve things the most efficiently uh, would be a good old fashioned check from the U.S. Treasury to each of the hospitals that were um, that had to uh, that get reimbursed at the, the wrong level. Um, I, I, I think that would be the easiest way to resolve it. Um, but I, I don't know for sure if they're going to go with that route. I think the covered entities we work with would like that approach. <laughs> There's been some other, yeah, you, know, yes. uh, you know, strategies that have been debated, but, you know, a, a simple repayment of what those lost uh, revenue would be, I think would, you know, welcome. Uh, the, the challenge, I guess, would be those Medicare Advantage plans, right? Right, Rob? Yeah, Medicare Advantage is going to be the that one's going to take a little longer, I'm pretty sure. But uh, but I'll be honest, as long as it doesn't involve rebilling, I, I think covered entities will be okay, even if it's not a check or some other mechanism. Rebilling is going to be a promise, especially going back 2018 through 2021. That's that that would be tough. It'll be really interesting to see what happens. I will tell you, 340B report will keep you up to date on yeah. that. Uh, we we were the, we found out just recently that the proposed rule has gone to the White House, so. Um, that's good news. And so uh, I'm hoping that we'll be able to report on some sort of uh, proposed resolution in the near future. They initially said April. April 2023 is when covered entities would know what the remediation was. And we're, it's, you know, it's May, May, May 4th right now as we record this. So they're a couple of days late. So we haven't had a Star Wars reference yeah. yet. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question. We talked about various uh, legislative drafts. Will new 340B legislation be signed into law before the end of 2024? I would say certainly before the end of 2024, uh, which is interesting because 340B legislation hardly ever gets signed by the president. Um, it's just never makes it. Well, not never. There have been several times in my career where we passed 340B legislation that's been signed by the president, but it, it is uh, rare. Um, but I do think that there will be some resolution to the contract pharmacy impasse, um, certainly by next year, uh, before they adjourn or running for re-election. Uh, come, uh, come next September, that's when they, they start to uh, head uh, to the campaign trail. Uh, I really hope it's before September 2024. That seems like a lifetime from now, as as you both know. Um, so uh, I do think that we will have a bill uh, that will be signed by the president that will restore the contract pharmacy program, um, but it won't be as uh, big and broad a contract pharmacy program as we've had in the past. All right. Next question. Will the Genesis lawsuit result in change in HRSA patient definition guidance by the end of 2024? Uh, well, it all depends on what happens with the Genesis lawsuit. Just to give a little bit of background um, to our listeners, uh, Genesis is a, is a community health center based in South Carolina. They believe uh, that they were unfairly punished uh, for what the government said it was non-compliance with the patient definition. The the FQHC in South Carolina successfully challenged that audit finding, and the decision was reversed. Nonetheless, uh, Genesis still feels like the current definition uh, is not enforceable, and they want to have a uh, they would like to have a more liberal interpretation of the patient definition. Um, and that is currently being debated in federal court. 
Um, and uh, it's unclear whether decision will uh, be made um, prior to uh, the end of this year or next year. Uh, as for coming up with a new patient definition, that's going to take, uh, I think, a lot longer than um, another year or two. Uh, as as uh, Rob re uh, referenced, we've had many battles over the definition of patient over the years, um, and there have been some proposals to clarify the rules. Um, many of those proposals, the hospitals and other providers thought were too uh, draconian in um, in imposing restrictions on the program, and none of them have become uh, final. Uh, but I do think that there needs to be some clarity in patient definition. Um, I'm just not entirely sure if they're going to get it uh, done before uh, the end of next year. But it's also possible because, um, you know, you could have a new administration coming in in 2025 uh, um, in January, and I'm sure um, uh, the providers in the program would like to get things clarified um, to their advantage before then. So we shall see. Great. All right. Last question. You, you talked a little bit about this earlier. We have uh, the Third Circuit Court ruling in favor of uh, the manufacturer restrictions in the contract pharmacy space. We got two other federal courts pending. Do you think uh, the Supreme Court will hear a 340B related case before the end of 2024? Uh, I am going to say that I don't think it's going to make it to the Supreme Court. Um, I am a, a little bit concerned that there will be uh, consensus among the three courts uh, in favor of the drug industry. If that's the case, then the, that's where it will end. Now, I'm not an attorney, uh, but I've been hanging out with attorneys for 25 years, uh, and I cover uh, the law as part of what we do at 340B Report. Um, that's my guess, but there's always a chance that um, perhaps um, one of the decisions will come out in favor of the providers uh, and in favor of the government in this contract pharmacy dispute. If that happens, then there's a much better chance that it will end up at the U.S. Supreme Court. And, and as you know, the U.S. Supreme Court is not afraid to tackle 340B. It actually has twice already, um, one related to whether providers have the right to sue drug manufacturers under the program, and then they had the more recent court case related to Medicare Part B reimbursement. So they're actually are, they're aware of the program um, here in Washington um, at the highest levels of the justice system. Given the, the judicial makeup, system. Yeah. <laughs> given the makeup of the uh, justices in the Supreme Court, any predictions or any thoughts on how uh, an argument around the contract pharmacy uh, issue would lean? Or well, I would say, yeah, I, I would, I would say that largely um, the folks who've ruled in favor of um, the drug industry have been Republican. Um, uh, justices, but that's not entirely the case. Uh, the one in Philadelphia was uh, uh, included uh, Democratic justices as well, uh, judges as well. So um, I really don't know. Um, Justice Kavanaugh uh, was the one who wrote the decision in favor of the 340B hospitals in a 9-0 decision. Um, so there was uh, uh, bipartisan support in the Supreme Court for the hospitals in that case. But a lot of it really is uh, they focus on things that are not necessarily related to 340B. They focus on bigger picture issues when they make these decisions. 
um, that uh, because they're thinking about the big picture and not necessarily the granular details of 340B. So it's really unclear how the judges would end up uh, ruling in uh, in the case if it does make it all the way up there. Awesome. Rob, any other questions we need to ask? <laughs> yeah, I know we're at time and uh, just want to appreciate all that insight, Ted. It's been wonderful having you on the podcast. We really appreciate you coming on and Again, just want to let everyone know, you know, if, if, if you're not already reading and subscribe to the 340 report, we strongly recommend you do so. Um, Ted also has Wexford Solutions where he does do that monthly blog uh, for one of the, the TBA vendors, which I think is fantastic. I, I read that as well. So, Ted, thank you for all you do for the 340 community, all you have done for the 340 community. Um, really important. And I, and I hope that uh, helps people know who are new to the program um, about your longstanding history with 340B and, and all you've done. Oh, well, thank you. And I, I think 340B Unscripted is a great service. I listen to it regularly. Big fan. Um, and uh, really proud that you guys started that and um, really think you guys are doing good work out there in the 340B community. And it's uh, a pleasure to be uh, friends with both of you. And I look forward to continuing to collaborate and have further discussions. Excellent. Fantastic. We should have you as a regular on. Sounds good. Yeah, as as, right. as we get resolution of some of these predictions, we'll 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 bring you back on here to talk about your your uh, your performance. So, okay, all right, good. <laughs> all right, thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, take care. We'll catch you the next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.